Well, welcome back to TLS. It's been uh, a little while since we did this, I think, but uh, it's good to see people. Um, we're going to look at uh, a controversial subject today. Um, so if you're listening on the podcast, I may say things you disagree with, but you know, we'll see. <laughs> but hopefully we can still remain friends. Um, the end times. Can we be optimistic or should we worry? And uh, if you're looking at the notes, the notes, by the way, are all available on the kingschurch.co.uk website under resources TLS. Uh, so if you want to look at any of the notes, they're all available uh, with a PDF file. Uh, but on the notes here, I've got uh, the first little title is Here Be Dragons, which, of course, <coughs> is what map makers of earlier days used to put on the map when they didn't really know what was there and just wanted to sort of warn people away from uh, wherever it might be. So uh, this is one of those areas where uh, it can cause controversy and, um, you know, you've got the Book of Revelation, which of course has dragons in it, um, with its very lurid and uh, amazing pictures of dramatic events going on and uh, amazing imagery. And a lot of people have, have used that as a, a ripe source of uh, fanciful speculation. And to be honest, the hermeneutics of it um, has sometimes been a bit lacking. So what I want to do today is um, is two things really. One is have a look at all of the well as, as much of the Bible teaching that we can uh, go through in the time we've got available on the end times, um, and try and understand it in the light of good hermeneutics. You know what the stuff we've been trying to do in TLS from the very beginning. Um, so things like, uh, w rather than just plucking verses out of the, uh, the Bible and just applying them straight away to our 20th or 21st century understanding, it's a case of, okay, what was the author trying to get across? What, what was the original hearer uh, going to learn from this? What did it mean in the first century? Um, and from that, if we understand that, then we're in a better place to, um, to actually apply it to our own lives. And of course, there are, there are many other principles like understanding a difficult passage in the light of an easier one and so on, all the things we've been trying to do. So that's the first thing, do some good, hum good hermeneutics on the end times. But secondly, I want us to be optimistic about it because the end times are meant to be a source of, or the, the teaching of it is supposed to be a source of hope and a source of, um, of optimism and faith and joy rather than what it's sometimes become, which is a, a source of of, um, of fear and um, uneasiness. So I've got a quote here from one of our former elders actually, Timothy Larson, now the McManus Professor of Christian Thought in Wheaton College in the USA. Uh, used to be here in Loughborough, brilliant teacher. He says, a right understanding of God's plan for the end of the age does not instill fear, but rather inspires faith. And so that's what we, we want to get to. So what do we mean by the end times? Well, eschatology, it's the study of the last things, especially the end of the age, uh, the return of Christ and everything associated with that. So the early Christians, if you look at Hebrews 1 verse 2, they, they talked about these last days. They believed they were living in the last days then. And you could say that the whole period between Jesus coming to live as a man on the earth and him returning in glory is, is all the last days. So it's, all, it's when God's purposes, his redemptive plan is reaching fulfilment. 
So I've got a couple of diagrams here in the notes, which you'll have to get the notes to, to see them, obviously. Um, <clears throat> so before Christ and after Christ, in terms of people's understanding of the end, the end of the world, the end of the age. And the first uh, diagram we have here is what the, effectively what you could glean from the Old Testament or what the, the Old Testament saints, what the, the people of God at the time, what they believed it would look like. So you have a timeline where the present age is, is sort of Satan's time. You know, he's, he's, uh, it's, it's a time of sin, of sickness, of death. The Spirit of God is, is, is restricted in terms, you know, it's not been poured out. Um, and then the end comes, this, this single point of the end. And then God brings in the coming age, which is the kingdom of God, it's God's time, it's, it's characterised by righteousness, wholeness, resurrection, the Spirit being poured out. But it didn't quite happen exactly like that. There was a, a subtle twist that was added. So they realised when Jesus came, when he died, when he rose again and then ascended into heaven, they realised that it wasn't all going to come at once. You didn't have this one single point of the end. So the kingdom broke in when Jesus came. But it didn't immediately fill the whole world. So um, there was going to be a, a period of time when the kingdom was invading the, the earth and the creation and the, the church was going to be an instrument of that. So the two ages, if you like, were overlapping. So this other diagram, you've got the present age, which you could call the time of the flesh or, you know, the sort of, if you, if you use flesh and spirit as two ways to, to describe it. Um, and then you've got the coming age, which is the time of the Spirit, the age, the new age of God. But it's begun. The coming age began when Jesus arrived, but it won't be fully consummated until he comes again. So you've got this time of the end, and we live between the times in the overlap of, of two ages. And so this is the, the picture that built up after, after uh, Jesus came. So... Now, of course, we get to taste the powers of the coming age, Hebrews 6, verse 5, which is fantastic. So what I want to do now, before we uh, have a discussion time, is go through some of the stuff that Christians generally agree on. <clears throat> there are always differences of opinion, but um, it'd be a good idea to just sort of get down some of the things that are not so controversial. So, first of all, a physical return. Um, so you could say, well, in one sense, Jesus returned in the person of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and, and some people say that, and that's, that's what we expect. Um, he, he also, you could say, he returns personally for believers when they die. Um, you know, there's a scripture um, where Jesus is talking to the disciples um, in the Gospel of John, and he says, uh, in my Father's house are many rooms. Uh, and if I'm, I'm going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go there, I'll come back and take you to be with me where I am. And many people interpret that to mean the, the second coming, the return of Christ. But actually, the word there isn't the same. It's, it's a different word that's used here. Um, and so it's actually more likely to be either the coming of Christ at Pentecost in, in the person of the Holy Spirit, so that he takes us to be where he is. So in, in the presence of God, in the, um, you know, in, in the, the, the union with Christ, that, um, that felt presence. Or it could be that, you know, when we 
come to the point of death if Jesus hasn't returned yet um, he comes back for us and takes us to be there uh, I, I sort of veer towards that one although many people go for the Pentecost option um, because the father's house having many rooms it's the, the word room there is to do with like a guest room or a temporary lodging place you know so I think we'd covered this when we talked about heaven we said it wasn't a permanent place of residence it was a, it was a sort of holding area for us a nice place to be before the the new earth comes in so we can look back at the session on heaven for that um, so you've got this you know this return in that respect but um, most Christians agree that there will be a physical return of Jesus at some definite point in the future and and a lot of that is based on what the angels said when he ascended into heaven in Acts 1 uh, the angels said to the disciples this same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven so it's the same Jesus in the same way whatever that means um, some people mean that he will actually touch down on the Mount of Olives whether that's actually literally true you know I don't know but it's the same physical Jesus will return um, so most Christians agree with that uh, second one resurrection judgment and destruction of evil so in one sense there's a very real sense in which at the cross evil was judged condemned and overcome um, but of course we know evil is still around us and the return of Christ will will weed out all the rest of the evil from creation destroy it forever and everything that causes people to sin uh, the Bible's fairly clear that there'll be a resurrection of both believers and unbelievers and then there'll be a, a final judgment now some people argue whether there will be a definite single point of final judgment you know some people say well maybe it's just the judgment that everybody goes through after death um, to me there's enough in there to suggest that there will be a final putting everything right because judgment isn't about necessarily judging individual people's sin judgment is about bringing justice and declaring what's right in the world in creation it's wider than individuals but of course whatever form the final judgment takes we don't need to fear it we've already been declared righteous if you think back to the TLS on justification and righteousness you know it's as though God has um, has seen forward into the future as, as what the final verdict will be and has sort of pulled it back into the present and said I'm going to declare the verdict now and then you're not in any doubt and we've been declared righteous um, persistent unbelievers will in some way reap the consequences of their continued rejection of Christ um, you know that there will be a resurrection of unbelievers and it seems from what the Bible says that some will persist in their uh, rebellion and refusal to accept relationship with God what happens to them then well we covered that or we tried to sort of grapple with some of that in the session we had on hell so there's um, I don't think at that resurrection there's no hope for those people um, the traditional evangelical position might be that that's it you know you've had your, you've had, you know you've uh, shot your bolt and that's the lot but uh, I'm not sure I'm not so sure that God's like that but it whatever it is it will be based on on justice and on relationship with God so the next thing uh, is glory and the eternal state so we'll receive new glorious immortal bodies which is a fantastic thing to look forward to 
and will fully enter the age to come. No more death, pain, sin and so on. And God's kingdom rule is fully expressed through the whole of creation. And that's why I think Paul told the Thessalonians to encourage one another about these things. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 that we'll revisit uh, after the break. So those are some of the things that there's broad agreement on. You know, that there's going to come a point in time at which Jesus is physically going to be present again. And that he's going to draw everything to a close, that there's going to be justice, that evil is going to be got rid of, and that we're going to then enter this eternal state, uh, which I don't believe is static. I think there'll be other things going on. God's too creative just to say, right, that's it. We'll just sit there and tr- strum our harps now. I think, um, you know, there's going to be more. There's, there's ages, there's coming ages to unfold God's greatness. But whilst Christians agree on that sort of thing, Christians do disagree on a number of things and they can get quite hot under the collar. Uh, There are lots of areas of of detail like the exact order of events around the return of Christ. Where does the natural nation of Israel fit into God's plans? That's a biggie. It actually, um, eschatological assumptions actually help to shape American political activity in the Middle East, (laughs) scarily. uh, the, the nature of the millennium, this thousand years, which we'll look at briefly in a moment. Um, characters like the Antichrist, the Beast, the Man of Lawlessness. You know, Christians have hugely differing views on on those kind of things. But does it matter? You know, is it all just points of detail, or is there more to it than that? You know, is it going to affect our lives? And of course, if somebody asks that question, they're obviously going to answer it by saying yes, it does matter. Um, having said that. Some of it, you just think, well, it'll all, it'll all come out in the wash. You know, some people say, well, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out in the end. Um, and uh, there is something to be said for that. Uh, but I do want to go through some of this stuff so we understand the words that people are talking about. Um, and we can understand the implications, perhaps, of where people are coming from. So let's just dabble, dabble briefly in the millennium. It's one of the most uh, fought-over <laughs> passages. It's only about six verses. It's a really obscure reference in a highly pictorial book, and yet people get quite hot under the collar. I do have an opinion on it, so um, I'm, you know, I'm not immune from having a, a reasonably strong opinion. But it's a common way, this, this, how, this approach to the thousand years is a common way of identifying the general gist of the way people think. Um, and it's, you know, it might be surprising, but it actually turns out to be a fairly significant point of difference. So, let's dive in. So some people believe Christ will come back before this 1,000 years where there's a supposed, you know, earthly kingdom that Jesus sets up. Uh, And so they believe that Jesus will return, that he will set up an earthly kingdom uh, in some way, whether, you know, so in in some ways going back to the Old Testament idea of a political and military type kingdom, uh, in some ways, it doesn't completely eliminate evil, but it ushers in a golden era. Believers are resurrected before the millennium, but unbelievers are not raised until afterwards. And so the fact that Christ comes back, or the the assumption there that Christ comes back before this thousand years is called premillennialism. 
So they're pre-millennialists because it's pre the millennium. Now other people believe there'll be um, either a literal thousand years or an indeterminately long period, it's usually taken more figuratively, in the future when the world will gradually become better and better and more and more affected by the gospel, uh, more Christianized, if you like. Um, there'll be growth in the church and the kingdom of God will, will have such success that evil is, is largely suppressed. And there'll be this kind of golden age, which they'll call the millennium, after which Jesus finally returns. And that, because Jesus comes back here after the millennium, it's called post-millennialism. And then he comes in and then there's the resurrection, then there's judgment, and then the final state uh, comes in. Still other people uh, believe that the millennium actually refers to the whole period between Christ's two comings. And it's a, a symbolic number. Um, it's called amillennialism because they don't believe in a literal millennium. So A is, is without millennium. But it's not that they don't believe in a millennium. It's just it has a, a symbolic um, meaning, meaning the, the time between Christ's first and second coming. And the, the reign that Jesus institutes is actually the reign of Christians uh, with him in the world. So either Christians who have died reigning in heaven with him or and or uh, Christians generally reigning in life generally under the influence of God's kingdom. So on the surface of things this is just well it's sort of just a bit of a detail of, of what's the future order of events but actually it can have a fairly significant impact on people's whole outlook how optimistic they are what they think the church should be doing um, and it can be uh, yeah quite a, it's, it's more significant than you might think so we'll, we'll look at more at that afterwards but what I want to do now is uh, have a quick break we can break into the uh, the scones as well I don't know what flavor they are today uh, mixed fruit and lemon. Mixed fruit and lemon. Okay, excellent. <laughs> um, what I want us to discuss is the fact that over time all of us will have been exposed to probably a range of different views, different teachings about the end times. And it'd be interesting just to think, well, what effect has that had on us? You know, when we first heard about Jesus returning, when people talked to us about it, did we feel encouraged or a bit disturbed or did we kind of get excited we were a bit unsettled or kind of wary um, a lot of it might have depended on how the future progression of how people expected the world to progress and how people expected the church to progress over time you know what effect is that going to have on our expectations what effect would that have on our evangelism and our confidence in the gospel so discuss and we'll come back shortly. <clears throat> okay, so we had a variety of uh, different experiences, um, but as we were saying, the, the impact of your theology actually makes a big difference to, uh, to your approach and to your expectations and so on. And even if you, you weren't one of those that uh, sat around as I did with my uh, teenage friends discussing you know, was the moon looking red tonight? And um, you know, we, you know, when Jesus comes back, etc. We talked about it quite a lot. But even if you weren't in that camp, um, the theology that you receive week by week in your church is is going to be affected by the theology of those who are teaching. So, 
Anyway, so let's go through this more. I've called this part two an eschatology of hope because that's what I believe it leads us to um, rather than of despair or fear or whatever else. So, so I will say at the beginning that there are uh, godly people, um, you know, sincere people who have uh, all a range of views, the three broad views of the thousand years, for example, that we just covered, but they do c carry with them a particular flavour. So premillennialism, um, especially, there's, there's sort of two, two versions of premillennialism, if you like. There's a sort of classic one, which is sort of a bit less extreme, and then you've got something called dispensationalism, which we're going to talk about quite a bit. Um, those two, the premillennial view, tends to assume that the world is going to get worse and worse and worse until the end. And then Jesus comes back, institutes the kingdom, and rescues the situation. So it tends to be a more pessimistic outlook. It tends to have quite a low expectation of what the church can achieve and what the church can become without Jesus coming back. So it's slightly more pessimistic. Post-millennialism, because... Postmillennialists believe in this uh, extension of the kingdom through the world, of the growth of the church and the success of the gospel, um, and the gospel succeeds in mostly Christianizing the world. It's a fantastically optimistic view. Um, whereas amillennials, uh, they tend to believe in an ongoing tension between good and evil right until the end, and so sometimes you can, in an amillennial view, can get into dualism, which is this sort of almost equal and opposite good and bad, and God and Satan equally matched. Um, now, obviously, we are dealing with the future here, and we're dealing with, um, you know, sometimes quite tricky passages of Scripture, um, therefore, nobody can be absolutely 100% certain. Uh, we are dealing with uncertainty, but I am going to say what my firmly but respectfully held view <laughs> is. Um, I do have friends who have a different view to me, and I, I enjoy discussions with them, and I won't fall out with them over it. Um, but mostly, I'm aligned with the amillennial position, largely. So the thousand years, in my view, is a figurative way of describing the overlap of the ages, this between-the-times period. That, that diagram was about uh, in the first bit. Uh, but I have a definite flavour of the post-millennial uh, about me, so this optimism about, about the Kingdom of God increasing this side of Christ's return. And I think that actually, when you look at the principles of hermeneutics that we have, have been talking about over the, the course of TLS, I think that is, to my mind, the, the, the view that agrees best with that. But we are dealing with the future, we are, you know, this is not a sort of dictatorship, you know, we, we do <laughs> allow difference and we allow people to say what they think. So the, the amillennial slash postmillennial view is increasing in popularity, but it's still not the dominant view. As we were saying in the break, there's this dominance of a premillennial view and especially dispensationalism. Now dispensationalism started off actually only in the 1800s. It was pretty unheard of before then. It was brought to the fore by people uh, like Darby and Schofield. Schofield produced this King James Bible, the Schofield Reference Bible, which became hugely successful. Um, and divide, they basically their theology is set out in there. But actually, you, 
probably dispensationalism goes back a little bit further to a guy called um, Edward Irving, who was a Scottish uh, minister who was quite radical because he believed in things like speaking in tongues and prophecy and stuff. And this is in the 1800s, you know, the 1880s or somewhere, somewhere around there. Um, many people consider him to be a bit unstable and a bit flaky. And so they, don't, they like to write him out of the history of dispensationalism because you know, they don't really like him, partly because there are a lot of them are cessationists as well, so they don't believe in gifts <laughs> of the Spirit and so, stuff like that. Anyway, it came out of probably Irving, possibly even originating in the prophecy of a 15-year-old girl um, that was recorded. And uh, the, the elements, some of the key elements of it are in there. But anyway, Ir Irving developed it, but then Derby really sort of broadcast it to the world, and then Schofield enshrined it in the Schofield Reference Bible. And what dispensationalism does, it's called that because it divides history into different dispensations, right from Adam all the way through the Bible, and it sees the Bible Whereas we would see the Bible based on the covenants, and we would sort of divide it up in terms of covenants, they would divide it up in terms of dispensations. Along, um, in each dispensation, God deals with humanity in different terms. Now, one of the things about dispensationalism as well is that it treats the Bible very, very literally. And that goes against a lot of our hermeneutical principles. Um, and it's a really complex interlocking system of belief where everything fits together and you, it, you know you pick at one bit and the rest of it will uh, come out as well if you if you try and you, you know it all depends on itself if you in the worst case it can involve believing in seven dispensations eight covenants up to four resurrections between four and seven judgments two raptures and two separate peoples of god <laughs> So it can get quite complicated. Um, it has evolved over time because gradually, I mean, they used to believe that um, the Jewish people and the church were eternally separate people with separate destinies and separate means of relating to God forever. Um, and that actually became untenable uh, because they realised, you know, that even... A sort of modicum of decent hermeneutics meant that you couldn't really say that. So they adapted it, but they still believe that the Jewish people have a specific purpose and, and uh, you know, a unique place in God's purposes in the kingdom. Um, so they did maintain some of that. So it, it's, it's still there, and um, it's in many denominations popular culture I've even mentioned here the Left Behind series of novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins it's very much from a dispensational viewpoint and it's become so popular that a lot of Christians in America and in the UK are not even aware that there's another way of thinking um, they think you're not a believer if you don't believe in this stuff you know you you're, you know you've probably fallen away or something um, but it has a, a lot of pitfalls um, and uh, you know, at this point, I am saying, okay, this this is my view, and I acknowledge that there are other views, but I believe that there are big, big practical and theological pitfalls with that system. So we're going to go through some of those and, and where we see ourselves as different, uh, and why we believe that good Bible interpretation leads us down a different road, and it also leads us down a more optimistic road as well. 
So first of all, two peoples or one, I've already touched on this. So dispensationalism believes God has a special purpose um, for, for the Jewish nation, the natural nation of Israel, that differs from that of the church. So one of the key things <clears throat> is that it says that the kingdom of God has not yet come. So, you know, if you say, if you stand up in a dispensationalist setting and say, the kingdom is here, they'll go, no, it's not. Um, so they believe that at the return of Jesus, the church is removed from the earth, which we'll talk about in a bit. We've already mentioned that in the, in the break. There's seven years of wrath and it's all horrible. Um, or sometimes three and a half or you know just but there's a period of wrath and then Jesus um, sort of returns again and this is where you get the sort of two comings back if you like but Jesus will set up an earthly kingdom where he reigns as the king of the Jews from a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem complete with all the animal sacrifices and all the ceremonies and rituals all put back into place um, and therefore the kingdom of God is an earthly Jewish kingdom for that 1,000 years. Now in my view, respectfully, that totally contradicts the teaching that Paul gave in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3 about God making a united people from Jew and Gentile, about joining the two, destroying the, the dividing wall of partition, you know, the... And also in Hebrews, the talks about the abolition of the, the physical temple. Um, you know, it's, it goes against all of that, in my view, when you look at the whole Bible. But of course, what, what dispensationalism does is it picks specific Bible texts, overlays a framework on them, and then makes them work together in a way that doesn't make sense, actually, if you, if you look at the whole Bible. Um, so the practical result of that, not only are you kind of expecting that we're going to go backwards, the world is going to go backwards to obsolete forms like animal sacrifices, but the practical result is if you think that the kingdom of God isn't here, that the Jews are responsible for setting up the kingdom of God in the earth, and it's not going to happen until Jesus comes back, then what is there left for the church to do? All we can do is try and persuade people, as many people as possible, to believe so that they won't be left behind um, and, you know, and go through this period of wrath. Um, so basically, it's, it promotes passivity and defeatism. You know, this, this world is just going to get worse and worse and worse, and all the best we can hope for is a, is a divine rescue. Um, now, I do believe in... I do believe that the, that the Bible promises that there will be a huge awakening in the Jewish people. I, you know, I do believe there will be a, a big revival and you know, it will be amazing for the world when that happens. But when it does happen, it will be based on exactly the same thing that our salvation is based on, you know, faith in Christ, basically. <coughs> Not their obedience to a previous dispensation or a previous covenant. Um, it's all going to be based on the one thing and I think Paul is very very clear on that um, so we're not expecting that um, but you can see why the belief in that dispensational system could lead to a kind of hold the fort for I am coming mentality you know just hold on and then Jesus will rescue you 
And that takes us on to the, the next section here, the church being whisked away. And this is the, the dispensationalist belief in a secret rapture. The word rapture itself doesn't really occur in the Bible, but it's sort of derived from <coughs> one of the words for, um, that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4. And it's, it, all this rapture stuff is based on 1 Thessalonians 4 verses 16 to 17. And you may have seen videos on YouTube or films, you know, there's, there's now a, a left behind film actually, where people, you know, believers across the world in every nation suddenly disappear without warning. And then planes fall out of the sky, buses crash, cars crash, um, you know, just everybody's in chaos and everybody who's left is wondering where did everybody just go? And then there's the seven year period of, um, of what they call the Great Tribulation, which we'll come on to in the next section. Um, so what, the, what they do is they say that, right, there's, there's this secret rapture. And if you read 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 to 17, it doesn't sound very secret to me. <laughs> there's the loud voice of the archangel, there's a big shout, there's a trumpet call of God, you know, there's massive dramatic stuff going on. So it doesn't seem very, very secret. But then what they do is, they, in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul, because you know how in 1 Thessalonians every chapter's got something about the return of Christ, but what the dispensationalists do is they say in, ver in chapter 5 there's a second return of Christ. So in other words, the view is the world gets worse and worse and worse, suddenly there's the rapture, so Jesus comes back for his church, the church get lifted off the earth, they meet the Lord in the air, and then for seven years they're off the earth, but then seven years later Jesus returns properly to the earth and his believers come with him. And at that time the Jewish earthly kingdom is set up, etc, etc. And what they say is that in chapter 5 Paul talks about that second return of Christ. And this two-stage return all sort of hinges on that. But the thing is, if you look at the whole, if you just read the letter, you would never in a million years come to the conclusion that this is talking about two separate events. The words, the Greek words Paul is using across the two chapters, the whole structure of the letter, the message he's trying to bring, it all runs counter to that. Um, this, uh, this rapture, um, it talks about the Lord's coming. And... Um, the words that the words that are used there there's one called this that's parousia which is means presence uh, but it, it can it also refers to the coming of someone and and then in particular um, it's to do with when a royal dignitary or someone of importance comes to visit a city and then the other v uh, word paul uses we will meet the lord in the air um, the word he uses there is again it's all about this same thing the meeting of somebody that's on a journey to your city the the important people in the city will go out <coughs> meet that person some distance away and then they will turn around and accompany that person back on the final stage of their journey so rather than Jesus coming down us meeting him in the air and then Jesus doing a u-turn and going back up to heaven it's us that does the U-turn. You know, we go and meet him. We do. We meet him. We do a U-turn. Then we come back to a renewed earth. Um, but the dispensationalists believe that no, we go off to heaven and we stay there for seven years, and God keeps us safe from what's coming on the world. 
Um, but you can see that if you do believe you're going to be evacuated, um, it becomes a bit of a, a rescue mentality. It becomes um, an escape rather than you know, having a theology of, no, we're going to transform the world. You know, we're not going to get whisked away so that God can pour out his wrath on the world. Uh, we want to see the world renewed. You know, the, the return of Christ to me is the, is the final push that, final, that just kind of really gets the job done. But we've already gone quite a long way ourselves. So I do think, yeah, we will be caught up to meet Christ in the air, whatever that means. You know, heaven, as we, we looked at um, a few months ago, heaven isn't so much a place in the space-time universe somewhere where, you know, it's somewhere out beyond, beyond Mars or something. Um, it's more like another dimension. You know, it's more like the dimension, God's dimension. And so when we meet him in the air, it may be that we momentarily, we move into that spiritual dimension, that heavenly dimension. Meanwhile, the earth is transformed and then we come back with him to this transformed earth. So it's no longer an escapist mindset. Get me out of here, God, before the tribulation arrives. But it's a victorious one. Um, so when it comes to the rapture, I do not anticipate that everyone's going to disappear and the planes are going to fall out of the sky. Um, it's going to all come at once, not this kind of massive long period of, uh, of wrath. So we'll go into this now, this great tribulation. And people talk about, you know, you, you've got to escape the great tribulation. Now tribulation really just means distress. Um, and the, the, the word of it, come, the, the idea of it comes from something Jesus said about a time of distress unequaled since the beginning of the world, which we're going to look at in a bit. But tribulation actually is, is not what dispensationalists think it is. They equate it with God's wrath poured out on the world, the church having been rescued beforehand. Um, but their, their thinking, their theology goes on to say that during that time of wrath and pouring out of, of anger on the world, that many, many Jews will be saved and come to faith, and many, un, many Gentiles will as well, some. And so they're going to they're gonna be tribulation saints. So they're going to actually undergo all the things that are happening in the world. So they're, they're sort of getting caught in friendly fire, if you like, on the, you know, God is pouring out his wrath. And so that the emphasis of dispensational teaching is don't get left behind. You don't want to kind of suffer all that. Um, you, you know, you've got to be one of those that actually uh, escapes it. Uh, if you remember, I don't know if anybody remembers Larry Norman, the sort of Christian rock musician. He, I think he died about 10 years ago. But, um, you know, there was a, a song, I wish we'd all been ready. And it was about man and wife asleep in bed. She turns her head and he's gone. You know, it's don't get left behind is the, the chorus. You know, that. I listened to that when I was probably, you know, just before university days. Um, there's great fear involved. You know, it, it's as Matthew said earlier, it's sort of there's um, evangelists use this concept to scare people into making decisions for Christ. You know, don't get left behind. Get, escape this terrible tribulation before it's all too late. Um, <clears throat> it's a bit of a far cry from what Paul says about use this to encourage one another. Um, but equating tribulation with God's <coughs> wrath is actually a mistake. 
um, the, the word tribulation actually is a theological word but it just means distress you know there'll be a time of distress um, and it's used all over the New Testament and it just generally refers to opposition and suffering that we will encounter you know the church is constantly undergoing persecution in different parts of the world the general suffering that we encounter in the Christian life and the great tribulation or the time of great distress is actually a reference to a completed historical event as we'll see later on so let's talk about this shadowy figure here the Antichrist now there's a lot of uh, <laughs> wild speculation and uh, lots of different um, understandings of this but Antichrist the beast you know the number of the beast it's even in secular culture you know it's the six everybody knows the number six 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 or the man of lawlessness, you know, it tends to be the Christians that know about that one because it's a bit of, a bit of an obscure uh, expression. Who's it going to be? You know, and there's this supposed world ruler who will arise in the last days to oppose the church and deceive them. And um, there's been an awful lot of people proposed as the Antichrist. You know, the, the popes have been always been a popular, uh, you know, candidate. Um, President Sadat of Egypt, you know, years ago. Henry Kissinger, who was, you know, quite a decent sort of diplomat you know, in the United States. He was promoted at one point as the Antichrist. Then, of course, you've got Hitler, Stalin, uh, Mao, you know, all the sort of dictators. Um, but, of course, it all gets revised when history doesn't turn out as, as, um, as people expected. Now, this slightly interesting thing is if you look at, if you do proper hermeneutics on these different passages of scripture you discover that they're actually all different things right. they're not the same thing at all you know people assume that this is one thing antichrist beast man of lawlessness all one but it's not it's different um, the antichrist or the spirit of antichrist and the many antichrists it all it's only talked about in john's letters and it's his way of talking about the satanically inspired opposition to Christ that was around in the first century and, and in any century but he talked about the many antichrists that have come anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is the antichrist and he clearly saw it as a spiritual battle um, the spirit of antichrist but he's not talking about a world ruler that will turn up 2,000 years later he's talking about the spirit of antichrist that's even now in the world um, he may have been talking about um, some of the the Roman emperors um, that, that may there were things happening in the world at that time um, but he was certainly not talking about the things that, um, that the other the, these other categories they're just different things so he's talking about the spirit of Antichrist opposition to Christ the beast um, now if you go back to, we talked about, I think we talked about this a bit when we looked at hell. There's actually two beasts in the uh, book of Revelation. There's the beast from the sea. And again, if you do, if you do, if you let the Bible interpret the Bible and look back into the Old Testament, you realise that a beast that comes out of the sea is basically an invading foreign empire. You know, the, the, some of the empires of, of the Old Testament are, are described in the prophetic literature as a beast out of the sea and so the beast coming out of the sea is a 
a world dominating, threatening, invading empire. So there's only one thing that they would have interpreted that as. And when John wrote the letter, the book of Revelation, which is actually in the form of a letter, he wrote it to the suffering church, the persecuted church of the day. They would have automatically just seen that he was talking about the Roman Empire. Now you can extend that because you, if with hermeneutics you work out what did it mean to the original hearers, what was the author trying to get across, and then you can see what it what it means in our setting. So you could say, okay, let's extrapolate from that and say, well, it could mean any um, dominating, uh, satanically inspired political power, yeah. but not necessarily a, a person that will arise. The second beast uh, was the beast out of the earth, and that beast was causing all the inhabitants of the earth to worship the first beast, and and the likelihood is there that this second beast that came out of the earth was actually to do with the cult of emperor worship, because from Julius Caesar onwards, all of the Roman emperors claimed divinity, and they all wanted to be worshipped as a god, and they had something called the Emperor's Day, you know, when in the beginning of the book of Revelation, John says, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit on the island of Patmos. An equally good translation of that is on Emperor's day, on the day when everybody was supposed to go into a particular place and say, Caesar is Lord. And then they would get a little piece of paper that said, I've done it. And then they'd be able to trade. So could be the mark of the beast, you know, that you had this thing that you had said, Caesar is Lord and then you were kind of free to do your thing. The Jews had a special dispensation not to do that. They didn't believe, they, they had a dispensation not to worship in the same way. It was a fragile dispensation not to do it, and they were always worried about it being removed. But the Jews and the Christians refused to do this. Um, so they, they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't say Caesar is Lord. So, But the point is that they this second beast um, was to do with the emperor wanting to be worshipped and John says I'm going to tell you the number of the beast and as I say everybody knows the number 666 but if you write out the name Nero Caesar in Hebrew and just apply the normal rules of numerical values of, of uh, Hebrew letters which they all knew about and they did uh, it comes to 666 um, in in Pompeii, there's a, a piece of Roman graffiti, and there's a, uh, and a carving somewhere that says, I love the girl whose number is 545. And, uh, you know, the girl, who, of course, would have known that was the number of her name, and everybody else would have had fun trying to work it out who it was, who did he love, you know. Um, and so it was done, you know. So 666 is Nero Caesar. Because Nero was was the probably the worst of, yeah, Roman emperor for persecuting the church. He also happens to have been the sixth emperor to claim divinity, from Julius Caesar onwards. And the number six is the number of man, humanity. It's sort of six six six. I once heard somebody say it's like it's like the devil or man trying his best to be God but not quite making seven. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so you can take it how you like. But anyway, it is a number, it does. it is a name, it's a real name of a real person. So the beast that John is talking about is actually the emperor, and especially the cult around the emperor of worshipping emperor. Uh, uh, yeah, okay, I'm aware of the time. Um, so 
that's who we we're talking about. So you could say in our day, transla translate it into our day, any false religion, satanically inspired uh, religious power, uh, we could have it as. But it's not the same thing quite as the spirit of Antichrist. It's related, but not quite the same. And it's not quite the same thing as man of lawlessness. Um, again, related, but not necessarily the same. So Paul talks about the man of lawlessness, um, again, in the, the letters to the Thessalonians. And there's been a lot of speculation as to who this is going to be. Um, Paul obviously has told the Thessalonians what it is, because he says, I've told you about this while I was there. So you know who I'm talking about. And he gives them some warning. Now, would he have said, oh yeah, I did chat to you, didn't I, about this guy who's going to arise 2,000 years in the future. <laughs> uh, he wouldn't have, would he? <laughs> he is not talking about a world ruler that's going to arise 2,000 years in the future. Why would he have told the church about it? So again, it's quite possible that it refers to Nero again, and the one that's holding him back um, is the previous emperor, Claudius. So at the time, when Paul wrote this, it's quite an early letter, um, the, there were three emperors, Caligula, Claudius, and then Nero. Caligula ordered the Jews, or ordered a, an image of himself to be set up in the Jewish temple. Uh, so that he could be worshipped as the true God. The Jews absolutely point-blank refused and for a time it looked like there was going to be bloodshed and war and stuff but then Caligula died. Claudius took over and he was more moderate. He wasn't too bad as emperors go. He still claimed divinity but it, it looked okay but in the wings in the background was this this guy Nero who was going to be emperor next. He was sort of breathing fire now Paul says the man of lawlessness is coming because people can see that Nero's coming and it's going to be trouble. But Claudius, the name Claudius is derived from a Latin word meaning to restrain. So could it be that Claudius is the restraining one, the one that's kind of preventing this Nero from actually coming? But, it, but Paul can see down the line and says that the lawless one is coming and there's going to be problems. So it's not to do with somebody that's going to arise and uh, you know the, I once heard that the EU the, or the European Economic Community was going to turn into the ten-headed beast and then it's got 28 heads now presumably or 27 soon <laughs> um, but yeah it, it's not to do with that it's it's more rooted in the first century with applications now but greater is he that is in us says, says John than the one who is in the world and he's talking about Antichrist so we have the victory all right, so I've gone on about that a bit too long, so I need to speed up a bit. So what did Jesus teach about himself? This is the most important thing. So he goes into the temple. They look around. The disciples say, wow, look at this. Look at these amazing stones. And Jesus says, the whole thing's going to come crashing down. It's going to be destroyed. Not one stone left on another. And they come to him privately and say, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now, they think it's all going to happen at once. So Jesus sits down, and in Matthew 24, and it's also in Mark 13 and Luke 21, it's in all three synoptic Gospels, he gives a response, and he gives it on the Mount of Olives. And so sometimes it's called the Olivet Discourse. Um, now, a lot of people interpret Jesus' response as being entirely about the future. 
when actually many, most Bible scholars agree that a lot of what Jesus was saying was actually to do with the actual destruction of the temple. I mean, that's the question he was asked, when is this going to happen? It actually happened in AD 70, about 40 years later, which is why Jesus said, this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened. A generation in the Bible is 40 years. And so it actually was, he was Jesus was prophesying. And he prophesies um, largely about the destruction of the temple. But then they've also asked him, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So he does go on to talk about that. Um, so where I'm coming from um, is that the f verses 1 to 35 in Matthew 24 are to do with the temple and the destruction of the temple. And then from 36 onwards, it's to do with the return of Christ. And if you look at the gap between those, that between those verses, Jesus talks about this is going to happen. There's going to be these signs, and da, da, da. and some of it actually sounds like the end of the world. But we'll look at that in a moment, and it's it doesn't have to be interpreted that way. Uh, and then he says, "But about that day or hour, no one knows the time or the date." And so there's a but in there, which used to get missed out of the translations, but it's come back in now. The but or the now about that time. So the wars, the famines and the persecutions and the backsliding and everything else, it actually happened in the first century. Because in AD 70, the Romans finally did get round to uh, beating up the Jews and destroying the temple and sacking Jerusalem. And it was a horrendous time. Um, they actually got rid of the sacrificial system, of, of course, for all time. Uh, not until the millennium. Uh, Hebrews 8 verses 13, uh, verse 13 says what's obsolete and outdated will soon disappear and Hebrews was written shortly before that was fulfilled and it did actually disappear the priestly system and sacrificial system. So Jesus talks about the abomination that causes desolation and many Christians go oh what's that going to be? But if you look in the parallel passage in Luke, Luke's writing to Gentiles. They don't know the Old Testament background. So Luke writes, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So he explains it for them. So it's basically the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem. Um, the abomination that causes desolation. It's an abomination because they're idolatrous. They're promoting worship of something other than God. Now, interestingly, Jesus says this thing of where there is a carcass there the vultures will gather. And what he's doing is he's comparing this temple with a dead body. He's saying it's just an empty carcass now. And the, word, the Greek word for vulture is the same as the Greek word for eagle. And what the Romans had on their shields, on their standards, uh, was eagle, the eagle symbol. So you've got the, the Roman army surrounding Jerusalem with its eagle standards. It's like a load of vultures gathered around this dead body and they're going to strip it clean. And so Jesus is speaking, metaphorically speaking, uh, prophetically with this imagery. So the vultures are gathering. So Jesus also says that there will be dramatic signs in the sun, the moon and the stars. And uh, the stars are going to fall out of the sky and the sun will turn black and all that. It, that's in different, different uh, scriptures, not just here. And it sounds like the end of the world. But again, if you read it in the light of Old Testament passages talking about the fall of nations like Babylon um, and others, it's couched in this language. 
So the, the stars falling out of the sky is like the rulers of those nations crashing down. Um, the, the sun turning black and, and all this kind of stuff, the, the dramatic celestial goings on, it's, it's a way, it's a prophetic way of describing the fall of a nation. You know, we, we, we talk about earth shattering events and we don't mean the earth is going to literally shatter. It's just an expression. And so these are the Old Testament prophetic ways of describing the fall of the nation. Okay, so we, you might think, well, okay, what does Jesus mean by they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven? Surely that refers to the return of Christ. Well, actually, it's a reference to Daniel 7, where the Son of Man, or one like a Son of Man, approaches the Ancient of Days and he comes on the clouds of heaven. And so it's actually a picture of Jesus' ascension, or of Jesus coming into God's presence, and the clouds are the presence of God. And so what Jesus is saying here is people are going to see when my words are fulfilled and the day of the Lord, the day of judgment comes against the temple and the temple is destroyed, people are going to see and it's going to be validated that I am indeed who I say I am. Um, so it's not necessary to view that bit as the end of the age because coming up the, the word there is different it's not the same thing it's 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 more to do with his ascension and his coming into the presence of god and then he says angels will go out and gather the elect and we think that's to do with the rapture or the dispensationists think that's the rapture gathering up you know gathering them up and taking them away but the word angel is just messenger it's used all over the place in the new testament so it could equally be translated i am going to um the end's going to come, you know, what we're talking about here, because the whole context is the destruction of the temple. When it happens, people are going to really see that I'm where it's at, that, you know, I really am the ancient, you know, I've come into the presence of the ancient of days, I am this one like a son of man, and then I'm going to send my messengers, my prophets, my evangelists, my people, throughout the world and they're going to gather the elect from the ends of the earth. In other words, the almost like the umbilical cord of the temple has been cut. The thing that was perhaps tying the church to some extent with its Jewish roots, it's been cut away and it's going to free the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. So then he says, but about that day or hour, now he's moved on. He's now talking about his return. He's starting a new thought at that point. And the point here is there are no signs. There are no earthquakes and famines. And people used to count earthquakes to see, you know, they used to count and physically, you know, seismologists, you know, would count how many earthquakes there have been. And they'd kind of be like a, a Christ's return thermometer, you know, how, how likely is it that, that Jesus is coming back? Because, it, but he, the point of the passage here from now on is everything's going to continue normally. People are going to continue getting married. There's not going to be any special sign. It's just going to happen. Oh, and by the way, this favourite passage of some, to, to be pessimistic about the love of most will grow cold. Jesus says, you know, the love of most will grow cold. And, then, you know, it's like there'll be a time of backsliding or rebellion or whatever. People assume, therefore, that means that, you know, that our premillennial understanding of everything going from bad to worse and then Jesus coming. That's surely true then. But this love of most growing cold is actually in the passage where Jesus is talking about the temple and the destruction of the temple. And there were awful things happening in Jerusalem. There was a siege. 
it was a time of distress unlike any other. It, you know, when you read the historical record of what happened in that day, it was absolutely awful. And there was, you know, people were, their love was growing cold in a big way. But we don't necessarily need to expect that there's going to be this mass time of backsliding before the return of Jesus, because Jesus is talking here about some, something specific. So finally, so yes, yeah, so the Great Tribulation, the great time of, uh, of distress, it was that intense suffering. So it's happened already. We will continue to experience tribulation generally. There will be, and there is now in the world, times of, of, of distress and persecution. But there is reason to be optimistic. So just to finish, Jesus is not returning for a defeated church, cowering in fear, longing to be rescued from God's wrath with evil prospering all around. Rather, he is returning for a glorious bride that has made herself ready. Revelation 19, verse 7. So that motivates us to work for the advance of God's kingdom. So I just wanted to finish with a, a scripture from Titus. Uh, and this is the effect that, if we have a good theology on this whole subject, this is the effect it has on us. We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So I've, I've skated over some stuff there. I've got some excellent recommendations for books. If you're, if you're kind of not quite sure about some of the things I've said, if I haven't explained it quite fully, one of the best books to read is something, uh, it's by Ian Russell and Tony Wastel, who are, are known to us here. It's called Win the World or Escape the Earth, The End Times Controversy. And then there are two fantastic books by Tony Ling called The Lion and the Lamb, uh, Reflections on the Book of Revelation, and they're very good as well. There we go.